packed our lunches for the next day, Nana would make the rounds and spend a few minutes with each of her ten grandchildren, rubbing our backs and whispering happiness into our ears. One night, when I was eleven, Nana came to my bed and found me crying. Dark hair had suddenly sprouted all over my arms, and I was hiding the two bearded limbs under the covers. Let me see your arms, Nana coaxed. No, I cried. They look like dad's. She pulled my arms from beneath the covers and rubbed them. Hairy arms, she beamed proudly. That means you're going to be rich. A few years later, hoping to fulfill Nana's prophecy, I got my first job as a summer playground supervisor. By the time I turned twenty-four, I'd have twenty-two others. It was my twenty-fourth job that made me rich. How did I get there? First, I believed Nana's words. More important, I used what I learned from my mother. Mom's lesson number one: If you don't have big breasts, put ribbons on your pigtails. The story of my billion-dollar business starts like this. I borrowed a thousand dollars from a friend. Okay, I didn't borrow it. He gave it to me, and he wasn't a friend. He was a boyfriend. But when I moved into my first apartment on East 86th Street with two roommates, I did have a thousand dollars to start a real estate company. It seems so simple. There'd be virtually no overhead. I'd probably rent two, maybe even three apartments a day, and we'd be running out of profit by the second Sunday of every month. All the rest will be gravy, I told my business partner boyfriend Ramon Simone, and we'll share the gravy evenly. He added, or almost evenly, forty-nine percent for me and fifty-one percent for him. After all, he explained. He was the one risking the money. I was wiping the counter of the Fortley Diner the first time Ramon walked in. It was a quiet night. There were only a few customers at the diner, and the other waitress, Gloria, had them all. Well, Gloria and her two well-rounded friends. Gloria was built like Dolly Parton and had a big bleached blonde swirl of cotton candy hair. Her breasts were the specialty of the house and had the power to lure men off the street, even if they weren't hungry. She could carry six cups of coffee stacked on top of them and never spill a drop. Gloria and her dynamic duo had put the Fortley Diner on the map, and watching the twins bounce around the diner had become sport in Fortley. I was watching her work the front section, and in an effort to feel busy, I was wiping the Baron for Michael landscape in front of me with a soggy white rag. The double aluminum doors at the far end of the diner opened, and in walked my destiny. I knew he was there before I even looked up. With his dark skin and jet black hair, he was unlike the working class customers who frequented the place. In his blue aviator shades, he was different, probably from a land far away, at least across the river. I figured, I had seen his crisp white collar and rich dark suit on only one other person in my twenty-one years, Irvin Rosenthal, the elderly owner of the Palisades Amusement Park. 
The park hovered atop the cliff above our house like a blinking, flashing, whirling spaceship. During the summers of my childhood, when Mr. Rosenthal drove down under Cliff Avenue in his black limousine, all the kids of Edgewater ran up to his car like chickens to the feet of a farmer's wife, each of us hoping to get more than our fair share of free ride tickets. In his finery, Mr. Rosenthal was like a king. We all knew he was rich. Besides the fact he owned the amusement park, he just smelled different than all of us river rats. Ramon smelled different, too, I decided, even from across the room and over the thick aroma of frying bacon and eggs. Instead of asking to sit at Gloria's station, he looked at the manager and, with a quick lift of his chin, pointed toward me, the young innocent behind the other counter. He walked across the diner, strutting like a pigeon. My eyes met his blue aviator shades. Finally, I thought, as he took a seat at the second stool, and interesting customer. He ordered a cup of tea, and while I banged in and out of the swing kitchen door, he sat and sipped it, hardly moving, just watching as I worked my counter. I loved my counter. It was my territory, and everything that went on there was under my control. There were nine stools, and every third one had a setup. Glass sugar container, ketchup bottle, salt and pepper shakers, and a tin filled with white napkins. Since I was stuck behind the counter face-to-face -face with my customers, I often served as their dinner companion, so I made the most of it and entertained them with conversation. Ramon told me he was from the Basque country. I didn't know if Basque was a town in New Jersey or not, and I suppose my face gave me away. It wasn't just any place in Spain, he explained. It was the upper echelon of French-Spanish society. He said his father had blonde hair and blue eyes just like me, and he liked the red ribbons on my pigtails. I smiled, spritzing the napkin tins and chrome tops of the sugar containers with Windex and shining them with a paper towel. He left 65 cents on the counter and offered me a ride home. I didn't need to weigh the options, walk the five blocks to the number 8 Lemoyne Avenue bus or be driven home by the man from the Basque Country. I'm finished at ten, I blurted. After my shift, I took the diner's concrete steps two at a time. Ramon was parked at the bottom in a buttercup yellow Lincoln Continental, the kind with the hump on the back. I opened the door and climbed into a car very different from any I'd ever been in. The seats felt like talcum powder against my arms and smelled expensive, unlike the crunchy seats of Dad's blue station wagon. Ten minutes later, we pulled up to the curb in front of my house. Ray, he said I could call him Ray, followed me up our front steps and into the living room. I offered him a seat on the black vinyl sofa where my parents slept, and he was quickly surrounded by a blur of ten blonde-haired, blue-eyed, cookie-cutter kids. I introduced Ramon, Simone from the Basque Country, to my family. My family hated Ray on sight, especially my mom, who, contrary to her normally welcoming ways, wanted the dark night out of her house as quickly as possible. He's much older than you, is all I remember her saying after Ray left. What she didn't say screamed loudly in the silence. Ray waited outside the diner every night and gave me a ride home. I guess you could say we were dating, though I didn't think of the rides that way. 
He told me he was a big real estate developer and built houses in every town in New Jersey, except mine. I also learned that he was 15 years older than I and was divorced with three daughters. To me, this all added to the intrigue. A few months later, Ray said a smart girl like me should be living in the big city. And to get me started, he offered to pay for a week at the Barbizon Hotel for Women. To my mother's dismay, I jumped at his offer and packed up a few belongings. I carried my suitcase down from the third floor. I had packed only my black ribbed sweater, two pleated skirts, my navy blue peacoat, and my new pair of pajamas. Mom was standing next to the living room radiator sorting socks. Now, Barbara, she said, pushing my bangs away from my eyes and looking out the front door toward the street, don't you be fooled by that fancy car. I gave her a quick peck on the cheek and a one-armed hug. I know, I know, Mom, I said. And remember, if you change your mind, you can always come home. With that, I hurried down the steps and climbed into Ray's big Lincoln with the yellow leather seats. Ray gave me some money to go buy myself a real New York outfit. I bought a purple one, a stretchy lavender lace top, lavender corduroy bell bottoms with six lavender buttons on the hip, a pair of lace-up, knee-high lavender suede boots. I walked out of Bloomingdale's all purple and paraded up Lexington Avenue singing, Hey there, Georgie girl, swinging down the street so fancy-free. I knew I was looking good and needed only two more things to stay in New York, a job and an apartment. The next morning, I put on my new outfit and applied for a receptionist position with the Jafuni Brothers Company on East 83rd and 1st. Thelma, my interviewer, explained that the Jafuni Brothers were two wealthy landlords who owned a dozen apartment buildings in Manhattan and Brooklyn. She said I'd be in charge of greeting every tenant who called with, Good morning, Jafuni Brothers. By the end of the day, I had landed the receptionist position, and by the end of the week, I had used the Village Voice want ads to find an apartment three blocks away from the office and two girls to share the rent. I moved myself out of the Barbizon Hotel. My Jafuni Brothers stint introduced me to Manhattan real estate. I wore my purple outfit eight days a week and probably said, Good morning, Jafuni Brothers, 800 times a day. But after a few months of Good morning, Jafuni Brothers, I eagerly gave Ray my no-overhead spiel about running out of profit by the second Sunday of every month and he gave me the $1,000 to start a real estate company. We became partners and named it Corcoran Simone. My old boss, Joseph Jafuni, said if I could find a tenant for one of his apartments, he'd pay me a whole month's rent as a commission. He showed me the list of apartments they had for rent, and I picked apartment 3K, the cheapest one-bedroom on the list. I created my makeshift Corcoran Simone office on the sofa one of my roommates had borrowed from her parents. My newly installed pink princess phone sat silent on the double-tiered mahogany end table as I stared bleary-eyed at the Sunday New York Times classified section. According to my count, there were exactly 1,246 one-bedroom apartments advertised. The ads were five or six lines long, and the apartments were all priced between $320 and $380 a month. 
I noticed the best ads among the lot were the splashy ones with the bigger, bolder headlines like Fabulous 3, Review 1 Bedroom, Triple Mint! Exclamation! Followed by a long list of superlatives. I worked out the numbers on my steno pad and realized that the big ads were a lot bigger than my budget. I decided to keep my ad to four lines or less in order to make Ray's $1,000 last the whole month. But how, I wondered, could I make my little ad stand out among the biggies and how was I going to draw someone's eye? Stretching my neck and looking up from the paper, I thought about my job at the Fortley Diner. Ah, Gloria, now she had a gimmick. On my first day at the diner, I saw Gloria had assets I'd never have, and that night went home to fret to my mother. And when we weren't busy, Mom, my counter was plain empty, even when Gloria's station was completely filled. Men were still asking to sit with Gloria and not me. Barbara Ann, you've got a great personality, Mom said, as she balanced baby Florence on her hip and hung a sheet on the line. You're going to have to learn to use what you've got. And since you don't have big breasts, why don't you tie some ribbons on your pigtails and just be as sweet as you are? And that's how Ray found me two years later, wearing ribbons on my pigtails and offering a cheerful alternative to the big-breasted, tiny-waisted, blonde bombshell Fortley sensation. I considered it a personal victory when a customer walked into the diner and asked to sit with pigtails. The simple gimmick pulled them to my counter, and my sweet-talking kept them coming back. Sitting alone in my apartment with the New York Times spread open on my lap, I thought about Mom's advice for competing with Gloria's superlatives, and I knew I needed an attention grabber for Apartment 3K. How, I asked myself, can I put ribbons on a typical one-bedroom in four lines or less and make it stand out from the other 1,246 apartments? I took a deep breath and picked up my pink princess phone. Hello, Mr. Jafuni, I began. I've been thinking about your one-bedroom on the third floor, and I think I have a way to rent it for $20 more each month. I had his attention. I told him how apartment 3K's living room was like every other living room in every other apartment in every other building in New York and convinced him that if he would put a wall to separate the living room from the dining alcove, he'd really have something different. Mr. Jafuni hesitated, giving it some thought, and then said he'd have the wall installed that week. I phoned my ad into the paper.